0: Good morning. Does it seem surreal to anybody else that it's November 1st? That's crazy. It's November. In case you didn't know, it's November 1st, which means December comes next, and then we'll be flipping calendars into a brand-new year. So it's time then for us to do something we started several years ago, and that is to, to invite your feedback for next year as we put together our messages and our teaching series. We'd love to hear from you. What we try to do as best we can is to map things out for a year, always open to changes, but um, to try to map things out for a year so we don't just go sermon to sermon, message to message, and just end up looking backwards and going, oh, we talked about the same thing a lot. We'd rather try to map things out. So if you'd let us know what Bible passages you'd like to look at, what books of the Bible you'd like to look at, are there topics that you'd like us to bring biblical perspective on? Is there questions you have? You could use this um, yellow sheet as a tool. You could just straight up email me things. I'm sorry that I'm, I haven't learned survey monkeys and all that stuff yet. I'm really low tech and I'm, I'm learning. But whatever it takes for you to get information our way, we'd love to hear because we'd really want to have our messages be as helpful as they possibly can. And that's where this message series came from. We wanted to help as best we can with people to, re, to experience more financial peace in their lives. And so we did a, a series called Reconciled that now we're wrapping up Today. It's a series that we've been in for three weeks, and this is part four. It's a series about what does it mean to be financially reconciled with God. And we've covered a lot of ground in the last three weeks. So with this last week of the series, what I want to do is I want to look at a challenge that's in the scriptures that is a remarkable challenge that God's given us. Because this is a challenge that the wealthiest, most generous nation in the world has not been able to rise to, um, at least in the way that, that, that God puts it out there. We find the precedence for this challenge in both the Old and the New Testaments. If we could put that slide up on the screen where we've got the words from Jesus, and then we have an Old Testament and a New Testament reference here. Jesus himself said that the poor you will always have with you. There will always be poor people in your midst. But here's the challenge, and we find it in the Old Testament, book of Deuteronomy, that... There will be no poor among you, meaning among my people. Here's the challenge. No poor among us. And for a really small window of time, in a particular time, particular place there in the book of Acts 4, 34, there was this little window where there was not a needy person among them, meaning among God's people. So here's the challenge if you are a note taker in your very full bulletin taco today. We have this insert here, the green one. And here's something I encourage you to, to take a look at um, Here's my thesis for today. The poor will always be with us, meaning in our world, but we, as God's people, are called to eliminate real poverty among us. Now, I'd love to go off in two different directions. We have to pick one. I'd love to go down the direction of what is real poverty. We'll do that in another series. But today I want to go down this this whole idea of this principle that poverty alleviation in our midst as a church and as the church of Jesus Christ all around the world that's meant to be a sign of God's presence among his people. Along these lines, I'll never forget a conversation I had with the mayor of Shoreview right out there at the pavilion. And I asked her, I said, what could we do as a church to help here in Shoreview? What could we do to help? And you know what she said? Right Without batting it, she said, I get asked that question a lot from churches. She said, the best thing you can do, take care of your people, is what she said. Take care of your people. The best thing you could do to help is to take care of your people. Isn't that what this is all about, right? Taking care of your people. Consider the kind of witness we'd have as a church if we could accomplish something that even the most generous nation in the history of the world, the United States of America, hasn't been able to accomplish. Why do I say it hasn't been able to accomplish? Look at the stats. Now, I got some old stats. I had so much stuff uh, that I was looking into this week that I ended up just bringing out some old stats, but I think it's fair to say that there hasn't been a lot of movement up Since 19, what is this? This stat is from 1992. Here's the stat. Congressional spending on welfare and social programs has risen 2,000% since 1960. So this is from a 1990-whatever book, 1991 book, or 1992 book, which is probably quoting some older stats. So it's risen even more since then. Despite this level of governmental intervention, poverty rates either remained the same or increased. Consequently, one in every five Children is impoverished. Unemployment, homelessness have proven once again their ability. There are those who would state that our good intentions as a nation are in many ways actually working against our stated goal. That there are some things that we're doing that are not helping and are actually, for some people, making things worse. Now, here's another quote that I want to give you, and this quote isn't coming from just like some pastor or something like that that are sometimes known for whatever, making things up on the spot. This is a guy named Robert Lupton. He wrote a book uh, called Toxic Charity. Uh, Here's what he writes. He's an urban activist. Here's what he writes about our nation's approach to charity. Not this isn't every individual organization. This is just as a whole, his observations. He says this. He says, Take people who are able and strong. Place them in the wealthiest land on earth, Surround them with unparalleled opportunity. Then pay them not to work, not to strive, not to achieve. Pay them to accept non-productivity as a way of life. Agree to subsidize their families with food, shelter, health care, and money if the fathers will leave. Do this for two or three generations and see what you produce. You will have a people who are unmotivated and dependent, whose hopes and dreams rise no higher than their subsidies, people who have lost the work ethic, who have learned that others will take responsibility for them and who therefore assert little discipline or control over their own lives. You will have created a generation of prideless, fatherless youth who believe that receiving and taking is better than working and investing. And when you've seen hope disappear from the eyes of the young, you can be sure that you have developed an effective formula for the destruction of a people. I don't want to do that. Any of you want to do that? No, we don't want to be part of the destruction of people. But unfortunately, what happens is people who are casually uh, acquainted with the Bible will sometimes say, well, isn't that what Jesus says to do? And they'll throw verses like this your way. Matthew 5.42 says this, and this is a quote from Jesus. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Did Jesus say these words? Yes. However... One of the things we try to say around here quite often is if you're going to represent God, represent him what? Well. If you're going to represent God, represent him well. And this is scripture, right? This is absolutely scripture. Well, what we want to do today is we want to look at some other scriptures too that I think shed light into what Jesus is saying here. One of the passages we're going to look at today, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to this. If you don't have a Bible, I want to let you know that we'd love to give you one today. At uh, each of the entrance and ex- exits, we have a stack of Bibles. Those are there for you. Please take one as a, as a gift. Now, as we're turning there in First Timothy, um, I want to give a little background in case you're not familiar with the Bible or with this, this book. The Bible is a collection of documents. It's a whole lot of ancient documents, all collected, vetted, very, very, very carefully. They, come, uh, they were written over the course of many centuries. They come from different locations. In fact, I think three different continents they were written on. The particular document that we're going to look at today is a first-century letter. It was written by the most successful church planter in the history of the world. His name is Paul, and he's writing to a young man, a an emerging leader named Timothy, who is, he's mentoring in the faith. Now, Paul, this is important, Paul was a visionary. This guy could vision cast with the best of them. But one of the things that was unique about Paul, he wasn't just a visionary, he was also a doer. God used him to do amazing things. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was part of the launch of the most successful poverty alleviation movement in the history of the world. Here's what one commentator said about Paul, and specifically this passage we're going to look at. This passage is written by someone who had been doing his best to organize actual communities, and he had discovered that grand ideas needed what? I love this. Needed bringing down to earth. Paul could take the principles that Jesus taught us, and then what he could do so well through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit was to apply them in the real world like no one before him. So what we're about to look at, the reason I'm giving all of this background, what we're about to look at, this isn't coming from some lofty idealist. This isn't coming from someone who never actually accomplished the things that he's accusing others of not doing. This is the inspired Word of God coming from a man who was instrumental, as I said before, during the launch of the most significant and viral poverty-alleviating movement the world has ever seen. So there's the lead-in. Here's the text. Today's text, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's start with verses 1 through 2. Here's what Paul writes to this young emerging leader. He says, Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would, what? a Say it with me. Father. Younger men, encourage them as what? Brothers. Older women as mothers. You're getting a little better at this. <laughs> Younger women as? There we go. In all purity. Alright, well let's, let's hit pause here for a second because I want to I touch on this. This is big. Paul uses a family metaphor here. Paul uses a family metaphor. This is the framework for everything that follows. The framework of a family. And may I add, this is a framework that's tied to the Great Commission. You really can't understand the Great Commission apart from family. If you were here last week, we had an insert. This week, it's purple because I know you save all these and now you're going to be able to look at, distinguish it too easily. Last week, we looked at the Great Commission, this Great Commission that Jesus gave his disciples through the lens of giving. Today, I'd encourage you to look through the lens of connecting because I believe this metaphor is so, so important. That if you become a disciple of Jesus, you move from more disconnected, just like a neighbor, to a guest. You're a part of something together. You move then towards a friend where you actually know each other well. And I believe that what God wants to do is to bring us to the place where we're family. We've got a heavenly father, and we see each other as family. This wasn't something that Paul made up. Jesus himself used this metaphor, the metaphor of family. This is a big deal. It provides the context for this. Now, I would encourage you to write this down um, in your notes. Church, this assembly, this sacred assembly of God's people, is much, 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 much more than an event that we attend. Among other things, church is also what? It's a family that we're members of. And in that culture, family was a powerful metaphor among other things, family wasn't just the primary social welfare safety net. Back in that time at that place, family was really the only social welfare safety net. Here's a quote that speaks to that. The scholar says, in a world, that time, Middle East, first century, actually beyond that, in a world without any form of state-organized social welfare, the church from the beginning took upon itself the task of caring for those with nobody to look after them and no means of supporting themselves. This meant, in particular, widows. In the ancient world, women whose husbands had died felt faced total destitution. Often, when someone became a Christian, their own family would disown them so that any support from relatives would be cut off. The church faced the tax of living as an alternative family and had to come to terms with the resulting tensions and difficulties as well as the possibilities of joyful shared life and mutual support meaning this they didn't have the the institutions that we have so they looked at family as this metaphor this is how you take care of people guess what you're supposed to be like that for each other paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, drew from this powerful metaphor of family, and he challenged God's people to care for fellow believers as if they were caring for their fathers and caring for their mothers and caring for their brothers and and caring for their sisters and caring for their extended families. Because the early church, like the church today, was as blended a family as they come, Paul, again through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Provide specific teaching. How do you do this well? Okay, I just told you, be like family. How do you do this well? And here's what Paul writes. These are his words. Direct quote, First Timothy, chapter 5, picking up at verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, to which the parents said amen. Go ahead and write that on your refrigerators if you you want. Make some return to their parents. This is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. You can include that if you want to. Look at this. Love me. Honor me. It's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Now, she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who's self-indulgence, these are not my words, She's dead. She's dead, even while she lives. May I present to you, we live in a very different culture today. Today, instead of turning first to ourselves and then to our families, we often turn first to some program, some institution, something outside of ourselves, outside of our families. And I, I witnessed this all the time, especially when we started the church and I was answering all the phones. Phone would ring, I'd pick it up, and it, a cold call, someone would say, hey, I need help. I need help, which is great, because why are we here? We're here to help. And the person would say, I need help. I need help with food. I need help with groceries. I need it with rent. I need help with gas. And I'd say, well, let's talk a little bit. I, let me get to know you a little bit. Let me click. That would happen more often than not. Click. And sometimes before the click, they'd play the, I thought you were a church card click. Well, here's the thing. We are a church, which is exactly why I didn't say, here's the the offering. That's exactly why, because what is the church instructed to do? Let's continue to read. Here's what the church is instructed to do. Picking up with verse 7, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now here's the principle. Let's go dot, dot, dot to verse 16. Here's the principle. The principle is for the church to not be burdened so that. This is not about us not giving. This is not about us not giving generously. It's the so that. So that we may care for those who are truly to care for those who truly have needs. You know, you wanted to say, don't hang up. Do you realize what we're saying here? We're inviting you into a community where you can find people that are like brothers and sisters that will ch- not just try to support you when you're down, but will encourage you to become everything that God wanted you to be, you know? Wow, what an opportunity. And also beyond what an opportunity, just straight up what a brilliant opportunity poverty allevi- alleviation model. What a brilliant model where every individual does their best to care for their own needs. And if they can't, then you have a family that does their best to help. And then if they can't, you've got extended family who can do their best to help. And if they can't, then you have a local church that can do its best to help. And then if they can't, which sometimes happens, we have example in precedent. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There was a church in Jerusalem at the time. They were having great poverty. There's famine. There's hardship. There's all this. So other churches were able to say, now we can step in and help you guys collectively. That's brilliant. You got safety net, safety net, safety net, safety net, safety net. But there's even more here than multiple backup safety nets. When the primary safety nets fail, there's also built-in accountability. There's also built-in accountability. If I've got an Uncle Bob who really needs help, that's one thing. If I've got an Uncle Bob who isn't doing anything to help himself and he wants me to pay for his rent, his gas, that's a different thing. This is about also accountability. Do you have people that really know you? Encourage, inspire, equip. I believe that's what Paul's getting at here. N.T. Wright writes this about the passage we're looking at. If the self-giving love of God in Jesus ends up enabling people to be self-indulgent, something has gone badly wrong somewhere. Can I get an amen to that? Because the model of Jesus was that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So should we serve one another? Absolutely. Should the expectation to be if we are capable of serving ourselves that we should expect others to know? So here's the model. As best I could summar- summarize it, there's a place to write this down in your notes. The worldwide church family is to provide a safety net for local churches who provide a safety net for relatives who are unable to meet the needs of individuals who are unable to meet their own needs. I believe that is the model. I'll say it one more time. The worldwide church family provides a safety net for local churches who provide a safety net for their relatives who are unable to meet the needs of individuals who are unable to meet their own needs. Now, this was countercultural, this model when it was delivered into the first century Middle East. countercultural. why? Because there was nothing like the church family back then. The world had never seen something like this. You mean, you're not related to that person, but yet you're treating them like your son, or your daughter, or your dad, or your mom? What? It was crazy. It was countercultural back then. The Jesus movement revolutionized the way the world began to care for people that they weren't related to. So here's something else I'd encourage you to write in your notes. The early church engaged in a collective selflessness that the world had never seen. Give us your widows. Give us your orphans. We'll do the best we possibly can. And if you trace public education back to its roots, it's pretty hard to show that to avoid the role that Christianity's played in that. If you, if you look at hospitals and clinics and all these amazing things, it's hard to try to do that without saying, oh, Christians, 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 Christians. The assembly of God's people, a.k.a. the church, was theology incarnate because through the church, people began to experience, at least in part, what it means to be adopted as God's sons and daughters. You could feel it because there were people around you that were actually doing it. If I may be so bold, I believe the Christian model for poverty alleviation is also becoming increasingly countercultural in the 21st century. Why? It's not because of the collective selflessness, it's because there are so many individuals who are feeling more and more entitled. The things that they didn't earn. And families are becoming so fragmented that we either don't or can't turn to one another. So here's a question that you can write in your notes. What if today's Christians return to a personal selflessness that our world is in desperate need of? Because this, too, is theology incarnate. When we exhibit selflessness as Christians... We're following in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth, who, as I said before, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is a very, very practical theology because, again, there is built-in accountability. We have people that can look to us and say, are you steward in your research as well? Are you giving the way God asked you to give? And as a recipient now, are you able to get back on your feet and begin to contribute to the needs of others, the real needs of others, as God has looked out for you. And this all happens through real community, through knowing and being known. Now, First Timothy is not the only place you find this teaching. Let me quickly take you to one more place in the scriptures. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, why don't we turn there? Second Thessalonians chapter 3, starting with verse 6. Let's look one more example. And this language is strong. Look at this. 2 Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from any brother. Do you see that? Keep away from. I spent a week in this passage, and I'm struck again fresh and new. I didn't notice it. Keep away from. Any brother, this is a person who says they're a part of the Christian family, not someone outside. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Again, here's that family, member, family metaphor in play. The last one we looked at, highlighted women. Here they're highlighting men. Let's pick, continue on, verse 7. We were not idle, Paul says. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone was not willing to work, let them not what? Eat. This is not if they're not willing to work Hey, we're not going to pay for your cable. This is if you're not willing to work, let them not eat. Picking up verse 11, we hear some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage. And I love those two words together grace and truth. We command and we what? We encourage. We command and we encourage. In the Lord Jesus Christ, do your work quietly. Earn your own living. Now, i like to point out a lot of things, but we don't have enough time for all of it, but I want to point this out. This is the third time in just six verses that Paul talks about their walk. Our actions matter. Our example matters as Christians. And this is three times in six verses. He pulls their attention. He says, look at your walk, you guys. Christians are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth. And I may have mentioned this before, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Picking up with verse 13, as for you brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Are there people that need help? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and that's what we do as part of the church family. I'm heading down to Juarez on Thursday. Why am I going there? Because they pay me? No, you know, <laughs> no. Because we want to help. We want to help. And our board meeting is there, and we're going to try to standardize. How can we help? That's what we're about. So my concern is not so much that people don't get that, that we're about helping, Yes. My greater concern is that we have a culture that we're a part of that is drifting so far in this other direction away from personal responsibility and away from the idea that people have personal responsibility and the God-given mandate to be as productive as they can. And a lot of that shame that he speaks to here, whether you consciously do or not, when you're not being productive, that has a way of sinking in, especially if you could be. And that brings us to the final verse, the final verse that we look at here in 2 Thessalonians. Now, it says, may the Lord of what? Peace. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. And I wish I could say, oh, I knew we were going to end with this when we started this. Because we we talked about this is going to be a series about financial peace. (laughs) And I wish I had been so... um, well-versed, that I'd be like, oh, and let's end with Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16, because it ends with peace. No, Holy Spirit did all that. This is about peace. It's about the Lord of peace. This has been a series about financial peace. And there is a peace that comes with as much as it depends on you earning your income. A peace that comes with saying, okay, this is the door that God has opened right now. It may not be the door that I wish he opened, but this is the door that he's opened right now. And as best I can, to the best of my ability, Holy Spirit, help me to give my best to this employer. Help me to work as to the Lord, not unto people. Help me to give my best to to be a a value to this company, to provide the best goods and services I can. There's a peace that comes with, I've done my best today. This is the job before me. This is the job that I'm giving my best to. There's a peace that comes from that. There's also a peace that comes from giving the way that God wants us to give, a peace that says, I've gone to God in prayer as best I can. I've looked at the scriptures, and this is, I'm giving the way he wanted to give. I'm not holding back. There's a peace that comes with that. There's a peace that is further strengthened then as we save the way the Bible instructs us to save that we're putting money away. There's a peace that comes with knowing if something comes my way, we have reserves to cover that. There's a peace then that is further strengthened on top of all those things as we learn to live with gratefulness, to go, okay, God, this is what you've given me? Okay, I'm going to, as best I can, choose to to live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving, and I'm going to thank you for that which you have given me. And on top of all that... If you're a true brother and sister in Christ, if you've been moving along that continuum, if you have Christian brothers and sisters who know you and love you, Christian brothers and sisters who you know and you love, on top of all that, you've got this safety net because you know if you're doing okay and something goes wrong there, you're going to take them in as a brother or sister. They will always have a roof, even if it's on your couch. They will always have a meal, even if it's your macaroni and cheese, right? They know that there's that safety net. And you know that there's that safety net because you're brothers and sisters. And we can do all of this joyfully. Why? Here's the last thing I encourage you to write down today. Because Jesus paid the price for our peace. Why do we give joyfully? Why is, is, I don't know everybody in here, but those of you who I know, this is one of the least judgmental, groups I've ever met. Do we hold each other accountable? Yes. At least we should. That's different than judgmental. If you come into this community and you 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 made mistakes, you're coming in, or, or just something hard has happened. This is not a community that points to you and go, well, if you would have just worked harder, you wouldn't have lost your job. That isn't how it always works. Or, you know, whatever. It's because of something going on in your life that you're... No. This is a community that just welcomes. Why? Because we know Jesus welcomed us. Did he wait for us to get our whole life together before he died on the cross for our sins? No. Freely, freely, we've been given. Freely, freely, we give. If anyone wants to come and turn their life around or start over, what a great place to do it because we don't point fingers. We just say, all right, from this day forward, how can we help? How can we help you get on back on your feet so that you can also help? Others, who are going to need to get back on their feet because every one of us has needed that or will need it. I think God orchestrates a lot of that in our lives, more than we maybe recognize. So we're able to freely give, freely give, because God has freely given to us. And can you imagine what could happen if we even took more steps in the footsteps of our Savior? I mean, I'm preaching to the choir on the things I've said here. Imagine if we could even go further. Imagine if God could bring us to the place where every member of this church gave according to the example that Jesus set and the model that Paul outlined. Imagine if every member here, if every member's needs were known by a small group of people so that when things happened, we could see more of what I already see. People literally taking each other in gift cards coming anonymously through our hands to families in need. You know, what a beautiful thing. What if we kept following this even further? What if God brought us to this place where one small group in a neighborhood owned one lawnmower, one leaf blower, one snow thrower? What if we could figure that out? Can you imagine that? If we could figure out the accountability and all this kind of stuff, where instead of everyone having to own all of these things, what if God brought us to that place? Wouldn't that be crazy? What if we discovered hey, wait a minute, you've got a boat, you've got a pool, we've got a cabin, we're great at fixing things, you're great at landscaping, you've got horses, you've got a trampoline. What if people started to realize wait, that sounds like a pretty rich lifestyle? What if we could figure that out as family? God has blessed us with these things. What if we could figure out what it meant that God blessed us with these things? That's crazy. There's a whole lot of reasons why it's not working. This is a fallen world and it's really hard to do well. But God only knows what could happen among us if we yielded ourselves completely to him and said, God, fill us with that spirit of peace that comes with following in the footsteps of Jesus radically. How fun could that be? Well, let's take a step in that direction as we join as brothers and sisters around the Lord's table.